Hi, I'm Thomas Lincoln. Hi everyone, I'm Carmelyn McCracken. I'm Mike Browning, sound engineer. Welcome to More to My Story podcast. Uh, this idea got started over dinner with some friends and Carmelyn and I were talking about how we love to listen to podcasts and how we know so many interesting people but we don't know their story. It's been fabulous because we have sat with different people here in our church for years and years and we all think oh yeah we know so and so we know so and so but when Thomas came up with this idea of let's sit down and have a conversation to really learn more about everyone that's where this podcast was formed and so we have had so much fun learning more to each person's story and we think you will too. More to my story is that was so true with Johnny Wood. Phenomenal individual, very open. I really enjoyed some of his experience he had in the military and what he shared with us. Uh, you know, it just really, he has such a diverse background. He really does. And I think that's the beauty of this podcast. I feel like we think we know people, but until we sit down and really listen to their story, we're just so surprised. So seeing him go from the military and ending up now in seminary and his love stories that he shared with us over the, the hour, really a great story. He was a good guest. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I think everybody's going to love this one. Johnny Wood, we are so glad you are here today. I feel like I already know you and many other people may say the same, but we're excited to hear more of your story today on our podcast, More to My Story. So we're going to go ahead and just get started. So welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to have you here. Okay, Thomas, you want to say hello? Hello, Johnny. Thanks for being here. And it's good to meet you and see you again. I'd like to learn more about you. All right. So let's go ahead and get started. So Johnny, I was so excited to read all the different uh, notes that I found about you in my research. And I already thought, oh, I kind of know Johnny, but boy, I don't know hardly anything. So this is really exciting. I do remember the first time I saw you and you uh, came to church on a Sunday with Jennifer in The Journey and you had a little scarf on and you're all, you're all, you know, sassy dressed and I just loved it. And I remember I thought you were one of her co-workers and I was like, oh, that's so nice. Jennifer invited a co-worker to church with us. So anyway, since then, it's been fun getting to know you and um, following your, your marriage to our friend Jennifer and growing all along. So um, that's exciting. But let's go ahead and start at the beginning. So tell us a little bit. I see that you were born in Arkansas. I was born in San Antonio. Oh, San Antonio. Yes. So right. I'm a Texan. I can actually say I'm an honest to good as native Texan. I did not. I only lived here three months. Okay. Uh, my dad was stationed at, um, at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. Okay. So he um, and my mom stayed there a little longer than they planned because I was due. And then I was born. And then three months later, we moved to Okinawa for three years. Okay. Okinawa, Oklahoma. Okinawa, Japan. I thought Okinawa, Japan. But when I was reading your notes, I thought maybe you didn't have a comma there. Because I thought Okinawa, Japan. And then I thought, oh, that's in Oklahoma. Oh. I live in Oklahoma, too. Okay, so. That's embarrassing. We might have to cut that part out. <laughs> so you, you mentioned in here you moved around a lot. The military brat is the mm -hmm. term you use. Tell us a little bit about that, what, you're, what that was like growing up in that kind of environment, moving a lot, and what you've learned from it. 
Sure. Um, I always think it's funny when people ask me to tell me more about that because for me it's normal. Yes, so true. I just uh, was in Angleton, First Presbyterian today, um, visiting, because I'll be preaching there the next couple of Sundays. Wonderful. And I've been talking to all the people there, and they all talk about how they lived there their whole lives, like their families lived there. Um, one man said that his mom and dad got married in the new chapel that was built in 1954. Oh, my <laughs> So for me, the idea of living in one place your entire life is kind of alien. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed moving around every two to three years. Um, you get to reinvent yourself. So if you're that goofy kid this time, you could be, or try to be the cool kid next time. You could try to be the book, you know, worm this time. Um, I just really enjoyed moving all over the country, all over the world. So let me ask you, did you reinvent yourself over and over? What were some of your favorite um, personas that you invented along the way? Oh, that's a great question. Um <laughs> You know, I, I stayed pretty much the same. I, I'm kind of an introvert, to be honest with you, which mm-hmm. is surprising, I think, to some people. But um, I don't particularly care to be the center of attention. I like to kind of be on the edges. I like to observe. So I love watching people. I'm a huge people watcher. That's probably why I got into cultural analysis, because I just really enjoy why do people do what they do. Right. Um, I guess in high school, I uh, really got into jazz. So I want to be that, like, that neo-beatnik kid. So I wore a lot of black and... Um, probably didn't show up to class as much as I should have, and I went to a lot of jazz concerts. So I really enjoyed kind of playing that role out for a while. Then I joined the Army when I was 17, and so um, I went a whole different direction then. I'll say. You know what's funny is when I first met you, and even how I kind of know you now, I kind of see you as a jazzy beatnik. So that's interesting that that was something you were back early in your late teens, and I kind of feel like you still sort of have that kind of um, sway to you? Do people still think you might be in a jazz band or whatnot? Have you been asked? (laughs) I have, um, and I I still love jazz. Um, And I'll bring everything back to theology because I'm a seminarian, so I love jazz because it is not, it's freeform, and there's room for God to show up in the details. And so I kind of like that about jazz as well. It's like a personification of how God works in in the world. Yes. Oh, that's good. But the risk of being too preachy. Right. (laughs) Right. So you've mentioned here in, in some of the notes that we have that you, you started working full-time when you were in high school. You weren't very classically driven in high school. And then later on, you talk about how you have different degrees and you're pursuing another degree now. What was it about high school? And what, when you look back at that, kind of tell us what was going on and what ended up happening and before you joined the military or drove you to join the military. Sure. Um, I can tell you was, uh, there was a day in the fifth grade when I was in a math class, and I was reading a book about um, the early British surgeons, and I was really fascinated by this book. I was just pouring into it, and the teacher came to me and said, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm reading. You know, it's not we're just doing math homework right now, so put your book away. And I literally remember thinking to myself, school has nothing to offer me. If and they're that going was to tell third me, grade? Fifth grade. Fifth grade. So when they're telling me, you know, put the book away. And then in that same year, I was bringing my dad's college textbooks to school with me. Um, there, he had one on abnormal psychology. He's got degrees in criminology. And I was fascinated by it. And some, and one of my teachers took it away. It just kind of reinforced the, I have nothing I really want to learn from you folks. And so I struggled with school. And then I found work. And I worked full-time through high school and just enjoyed the, I was a server and a busboy and a cook. I just enjoyed the idea of making people happy with food and talking to them and learning more about their stories um, that I would 
I shouldn't say this probably, but I was in high school. I would ditch classes all the time in order to pick up extra shifts at work. So I wasn't ditching to go off and, you know, do something crazy like, uh, you know, run the streets or anything like that. Right. I was ditching to make money, but mostly just to interact with people in the adult world. To be engaged. Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting about that, too, that from an early age you felt discouraged from education or the process yet you have like all these degrees in later education so you always love to learn and it really was almost that they were stifling that at the young age so kind of you pulled away until you had more of the freedom to really study and and because don't you have tell, tell us what degrees you hold um <laughs> i hold a uh, master's in international relations i hold an equivalent degree in philosophy which basically is political philosophy and i'm working on a master's in divinity now so I bet your fifth grade teacher would be shocked. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I do. The reason why I joined the military at seventeen is because I learned about the Defense Language Institute, which is where they send military linguists to go get trained. And it's a um, anywhere from seven month to eighteen month intensive program where you're just studying a language eight hours a day. That's all you do. And after the first couple of weeks, it's all in whatever language it is that you're learning. So I wow. started in Russian and then moved to German. And I, that's the reason why I joined the Air Force, or the Army first, even though my dad was Air Force, is because I wanted to go to the Defense Language Institute, to DLI, to learn Russian. Wow. This is during the Cold War. And um, I went to the Marine Corps, and they said, well, you joined the Marine Corps to be a Marine. I'm like, okay, done. Um, <laughs> I went to the Navy, and I had the really high test scores for getting into the military. So they wanted me to do nuclear propulsion, oh which is all math. At 17? Yes. Wow. So, and, uh, you know, I took the test for that, and I, I scored well enough to get into school, but I just couldn't see myself doing three years of, of physics calculus and crazy stuff like that, so no thank you. And the Air Force said they would give me the language school, but they wouldn't guarantee a language, and they, they were taking Korean linguists a lot, so I said no, and then the Army said, well, we'd be happy to have you, so. That is interesting. So and how, I went in, all these visits, what's, what's the time frame? Is that like a month you did all those, or was it like... Probably two months. Two months? Yeah, once I learned about it, I was still 16, so I had to have my parents' permission to take the tests. Um, and then they had to sign off for me to join once I decided. But the Army not only would send me to school for the language I wanted, but they also sent me to do something called psychological operations, which is basically um, psychological warfare. And I really enjoyed that. So. So, so, oh, go ahead. How many languages do you speak? The military says I speak five, um, okay. but their standards are really low, so <laughs> I don't take that. I probably I can get along in about a dozen languages if you're talking about food or religion. Oh, interesting. And like a tourist, you could you could go in twelve languages just as a tourist. Any? Yeah, I feel pretty confident in that, and I can I pick up languages easy. I think that's because when we were in Okinawa, we lived in the village and not on post, oh. so. Um, you know, I basically learn Japanese or don't play with friends, so I I picked up Japanese a little bit. I've forgotten most of it, but I can still, if I'm around Japanese speakers for very long, I can start picking up some food, again, food things. Yeah. I'm very motivated by food. That's funny. <laughs> I think we all are. Yeah, that's yeah. for sure. So are you a good cook? You know, I, I think so. Um, Jennifer and the kids think so. Okay. So, yeah, I, I, I love to cook. Um, some of my best jobs in the military when I would be deployed um, wasn't because of how well I did at my job. It was because they found out I could cook. And so the first couple of times I was asked to be on teams simply because I, w I cooked well. And then they said, oh, and by the way, he's a good cultural analyst, too. So How funny. So let's go back to the, the um, Defense Language Institute. So mm -hmm. you go there, you learn Russian. Mm -hmm. Did you go into some sort of career position then and then go back? 
or did you just take that? Because you mentioned German as well. well. I learned Russian. Okay. And this is in the um, the school is the main school is in Monterey, California. But I was one of the first people to be in a branch they had in San Francisco for a time. So I got to live in San Francisco for almost better part of 19 months. I wow. loved it. How old were you then? 17. Oh, so this uh, is right in the 17, beginning. 17, 18. So, okay. yeah, basically. Right basically, after your jazz phase. Right after San Francisco. I know, that's what I was going to say. Bad, and I stayed bad. the jazz phase because there's a lot of great jazz. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, and Russian and I, partially because I had never had to struggle with school. Like, if I wanted to do it well, I did it well. Well, I didn't have the study habits. So Russian and I didn't get along very well. I was always hanging on by the, by the very tips of my nails. So they basically decided maybe German would be a better language for you. So I transitioned from Russian to German. And then I went to um, advanced individual training for psychological operations. So they put the language first because so many people wash out of the language school that it doesn't. they don't want to train them in the job and then see if they can pick up a language. So when you were doing the psychological um, part of the training, were you doing that in German? No. Um, okay. There are people who are language qualified in that job. And okay. when I was in, it was about two-thirds of people were language qualified, one-third were not. And nowadays, from what I understand, it's about half and half. So, um, But most of us were language qualified of some kind. I went to the psychological operations school. It was mostly at that time Korean, Russian, and Chinese. So if you went there at 17, was that considered like university years then? Was that kind of, were you kind of living like a, like a university student in the Army or? No, I was, um, I would do eight hours a day of language training. We had formation first thing in the morning. Okay. We had physical training in the afternoon. Um, one, of my, one of my best memories in my life, I think, is every Thursday we ran a seven-mile run at the Presidio of San Francisco, but it ended we crossed the Golden Gate Bridge. So every oh, Thursday we ran the Golden Gate Bridge over to Marin, Marin, Marin County wow. and then came back. And that was a, a neat experience. That is. So real quick back then, are you an only child? No, I have a brother. Okay, yeah. okay. Older or younger? Younger. Okay. And what is, what, when you, how much younger? Five years. Five years. Okay, okay. All right. Very good. All right, so... <clears throat> You go to the psychology operations training, mm-hmm. you get into a career. What's kind of some of your career highlights and kind of walk us through that a little bit um, from this point? I, I mean, you've, you, got me, you got me hooked here. I'm really interested in, in where this goes, your military career. Okay, so I spent about four years, a little over four years in the Army. And um, during that time, I was an active duty reservist, which meant I was in the Army reserves, but I was showing up every day to work. So really, there's not much of a difference. In between reserve and active duty. Um, and then uh, you may remember about that time is when the wall fell. So okay. I went in 87 language school, 89 is when the wall fell, and all of a sudden we didn't need Russian and German linguists anymore. How funny. So there was a, a mini drawdown, and they gave us all choices, basically, if we were language qualified in German. We could either um, move on to special forces, which did not sound fun to me. They were my customer, we'd call them today. Um, but I wasn't one. I didn't really want to be one because um, that's just not my, my cup of tea, or at least it wasn't then. And um, Or to be a housing NCO. So there's all these service people living in Germany. They mostly rent from local landlords. And so they were going to turn all the linguists into these people who would negotiate between landlords and the military if something whole got punched in the wall or you're late on your rent or something like that. That did not even kind of appeal to me. 
And so I uh, decided to take a normal reserve job back in Colorado. By this time, I was married and had a daughter and uh, hadn't seen them much, so it was nice to come home. And I managed a restaurant for about six months before I realized that working 70 hours a week to not make ends meet wasn't really my, my cup of tea either. So I decided to rejoin the military in the Air Force. Okay, so hold on a second. Yeah, so, it's confusing. Yeah, I know, right? So you're in California. Do you meet and marry Linda in California? We actually, um, she's my high school sweetheart. So oh. I actually had uh, had asked her to marry me before I went off to the military. So Okay, so did you get married before you went off to the military? I got or married just during. Okay. So I was in basic training, and then I was in DLI for a while, and then I came back home and got married on a weekend. And where were you all married? What? State, country? Colorado. Oh, Colorado. Yep. Okay. So you were married in Colorado, and then now in the meantime, you're working in California? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then at this time, then your daughter, your first daughter comes, your only daughter. You have a daughter and a son. Is that right? Um, yes, from Linda. I have two, yes. two biological children. Okay, yes. yes. Okay. Well, I was going to get to that. Yeah, I know you've got a great family story. Okay, so your daughter was born, and that brought you back to Colorado then? Not right away. I went to... Um, like I said, it's confusing. Yeah. So I went from DLI in California to um, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and that's where I did my training, and that's where I was initially stationed. Okay. Did Linda come with you there? No. Um, okay. Baby was young. She had a job. Um, sure. Yeah. Sure. And then she, we were already separated because California was wildly expensive for an E2, for a private to live right. uh, with his family, so we opted not to do that, so... Okay, so then you move back to Colorado, and mm-hmm. that's where you start managing the restaurant? Yes. So okay. you're just a, like a weekend reservist. Then. Right. <clears throat> and you do that, can't make the money, or it wasn't worth the, the 70 hours, wasn't going to give you enough. Right. So then you join the Air Force? I did, because I decided really early on that I wanted a degree. I've always wanted to go to college and, and do that. Um, I thought I could do it in the Army, but it just... All I was doing is Army stuff. And then um, I thought I could do it managing the restaurant, but literally I was working 70 hours. I think I had, um, when I decided to join the Air Force, go back in as the Air Force, um, in November, December, I had three days off, and none of those were Christmas or Thanksgiving, and they weren't in a row. So, you know, you never get to see your daughter, you never get to see your wife, and you're not making your bills. It's kind of ridiculous. So I decided to to join the Air Force because I thought for four years, get my bachelor's degree and then get out and go do something else. And about how old are you at this point? So I'm 21. 21? Okay. 20, 20, 21. Okay. So now you decided to join the Air Force, and was your dad like, oh, finally, son? Because he was in the Air Force, right? <laughs> he was in the Air Force, okay. right. Um, the, he was very supportive. My mom um, wasn't wild about the idea that oh, sure. I was going to leave at 17, um, but no one really cared about the Army versus the Air Force too much. Oh, okay. No. Um, and then, so I joined the Air Force, and... Um, I thought, you know, oh, I speak two languages. I have, you know, psychological operations training, which is considered special operations. So I thought, surely I'm going to go someplace like that. And then they said, well, we want you to do electronics. Oh. Um, it turns out they just need some a bunch of people for electronics for the quota for that recruiter for that month. How so funny. I decided being a, and I originally wanted to do mortuary affairs. My reason behind that is it's only a three-month school. And then when you're done, you're well on your way to being a funeral director, which I thought, you know, steady income forever. People are always going to pass away and need a funeral director. (laughs) But they said I couldn't do that. So I uh, instead I I decided uh, when they told me I had to be electronics, I decided to take the longest possible school I could because I figured if I'm going to do electronics, I want to go to a really long training 
that'll give me a better chance of getting a decent job after sure. my four years is up. So I did uh, mainframe computer maintenance. Gosh, mainframe. And this is in the, what year, what decade are we now? Uh, early 80s. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, early 90s. So early 90s, okay. 89, 90. Yes. So this is really when that, that IT or computer uh, science type study was really starting to pick up at the universities. And right. Yeah, people were starting to say, hey, this is a good career, a lot of money. And you're in the military, so you do that. And then what did you do? Once you got through the school, where did it take you? Okay, so then um, I got to the school, and the system, the, the computer system that I specialized in during the nine months of training was um, the old Strategic Air Command communication system. So basically, this is the computer system that um, all the um, intercontinental ballistic missile bases use to talk to each other. So very niche market. I wasn't happy about that, but I figured, hey, I can go to school and... Uh, work on that well surprise surprise they quickly learned that i spoke the languages and i had the operational training they're like why are you in computer maintenance so i was still doing computer maintenance some but i was always being um, grabbed by different offices on base to come help them do whatever the case may be so cultural analysis political analysis so i never really had a traditional computer maintenance job hmm. i was kind of like a fraud in that respect <laughs> so did you travel a lot relocate are you are you and Linda and your family together at this point? Or? Yeah, so we're together. Um, went to, I came, I was in um, Biloxi, Mississippi for my training for the, um, computer maintenance. Then I was sent to Omaha, Nebraska, where I'd lived as a kid once, so that was kind of fun to go back to. And um, I also got to go to school, so it was a fairly steady job. By then, our son came along, so I had um, my daughter and my son, and he was I worked nights, and he was had his schedules flipped for a long time, so Linda would hand him off to me at 1 o'clock in the morning when I came home, and I got to be with my son for four hours oh. while doing homework, and then I went to class during the day. So, hmm. Well, and let's interrupt for a second about your son, because you're Johnny Wood the fourth. I am technically Johnny Wood Jr. Oh, you're Jr. I'm Jr., but my father was named after his uncle who passed away when he was a child. Oh, okay. And so I probably should be the third. The third. And then your son is the fourth. The fourth. Okay. And also, again, I, I, I'm I just curious, but I've never seen the name Johnny spelled like you spell yours. And is that your birth-given name? That's my birth-given name. I tell everybody that it's Ozark for Johnny because that's where my, my parents come from. So. Oh, so spell it for us. J-O-H-N-I-E. And you've always gone by Johnny. Never always gone John. by Johnny. I don't like John, to yeah. be honest with you. Yeah, you um, look like a Johnny. You. Yeah. And does your son go by Johnny? He does. And did your dad go by Johnny? He did. I love it. Okay. Yeah. So is your son Johnny George? Johnny George, which I couldn't stand the name. When my daughter came along, if it had been a boy, we would not have named her Johnny George because I didn't like the name. But after a while, it kind of stuck with me that I'd love to have a son named Johnny George Wood. Oh, my gosh. I love it. I love it. Okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to go off on that tangent, no, okay. but I found that fascinating. Okay. So in here, you mentioned that you were stationed in Germany uh, and worked with NATO. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. So um, it was kind of a funny story. So I, I got my, my first four years, and I was going to get out. I, I, in, in those four years, I got my four-year degree, which um, was hustling a little bit because I was working full-time, had a family. First Gulf War happened, so I was gone for that for several months. Gosh. Um, and I thought, I got my degree, I'm leaving. You know, I started putting my job applications out. I got a degree in political science. I had these language backgrounds. I, I specialized in, um, I was able to 
do some stuff normally only graduate students could do. So I got to have an emphasis on Eastern Europe, which I, I was just really excited about going on to get a master's and a PhD. I thought I'd go be an analyst or maybe teach. And then the Air Force, uh, I uh, made sergeant the first time for testing with it. And so that was kind of cool. And I thought, that's not bad money, but I'm still going to get out. And, and my my uh, bosses, my superiors were like, you know, you made sergeant your first time. That's a pretty big deal back then. I'm like, yeah, but I, I don't want to do this. I want to get out. Well, what if we, um, what if you stationed in Belgium for your next assignment? With the family? With the family. Okay. So I said, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> I, I believe that works. <laughs> so I went, uh, you know, at the time we weren't, didn't have um, the internet like we do now. So I had right. to, I asked about different education options and the Troy, at the then Troy State University had a master's program in international Troy's relations. From Michigan, Troy State, from, where's Troy State? Um, Alabama. Alabama, okay. It's now just Troy University, so oh, okay. they've changed their name. But they had um, full a full degree program at a couple of the bases that were nearby where I was going to be stationed. And so I said, yeah, I could do four or three years in Belgium and get my master's degree while I'm doing it. And so... And I, how old were your kids then? So my son was probably just turning four, and my daughter then was seven. Okay, so you grew up as a military brat, which I always think that's a weird term, so I apologize, but guess what you said. I love it. Okay. (laughs) I think it's a great term. Okay, that's so odd to me as as not being a military brat. So were your kids then military brats as well? Because I think when we asked, um, when we were looking at where you've lived, I think I counted at least 12 different places, and many of them twice and three times. Mm -hmm. So was a lot of that once you had children? Um, that's from the time I was born up until... Okay, that's the whole, that's the whole shebang. The whole shebang, yeah. Oh, okay. So, I mean, my kids are military brats. They They, they moved, like, all the time, too. So yes. My son's first school was a um, um, Flemish, so it's a Dutch-speaking section of Belgium. He went to a Flemish and English school, so in the mornings it was the Flemish side oh for goodness. kindergarten. Then he went to the American kindergarten. And my daughter went to the same school, and they had teachers that were from Belgium as well as American teachers. Wow. So. so do they speak different languages growing up? Um, my son, when at the time, he, he was fluent in, in Flemish and Dutch. Sure. Um, and then had some French. My daughter picked up some. She says she doesn't speak it very well, but she sp- speaks pretty decent Flemish and some French as well. That is really neat. I, I just, I'm amazed when people can speak multiple languages because oh, yeah. I struggle with it. I, I do some international business, and it's just deal with people that English is their second or third language. And I'm just amazed because it's... They do it so well. So, I, I, I mean, just hearing about this is just so cool to have that experience. I think a lot of it's being exposed at an early age. And then a lot of it, like in Belgium, I lived in Belgium, but we were 15 minutes from Germany. We were 20 minutes from the Netherlands. We were, you know, I lived, I worked in the French-speaking section, but I lived in the Flemish-speaking section. So you're there, you've got to speak four languages right off the bat. The guy who delivered my propane, I don't think he ever finished high school there in Belgium, but he spoke five languages and spoke them well. Wow. Yeah. So... Have you had your IQ tested? Uh, yes. Are you really smart? <laughs> they say I'm really smart, yes. I, I, mean, I would say he's pretty smart. I think he's got to be like super smart, though, because literally from, first of all, being in fifth grade, reading your dad's psychology university books and whatnot, and then you know being discouraged with high school and its limits, but then at 17 going and studying you know, in California. And then, I mean, it sounds like you pick up things very quick and it, it sounds like you have a, a really great, um, open mind to just retain a lot. And so I was curious, your IQ must just be off the chart, but you're, but you don't, 
you don't have that, um, oh, we might have to cut this out. You don't have that like weirdo, I'm super smart, smart. But I think you're super smart. <laughs> I, I see a lot of connections in things, and that helps me remember things. Yes. Like when I see something, I'll see a connection that a lot of people don't see. Right. And I think that's what helps me retain things better. It's really a blessing. Yes. It is. Oh, it is. Oh, I love it. I love it. So how long were you? did you end up staying in the military and the Air Force for? So um, altogether, I stayed in almost 22 years, so 21 and a half years, something so like full that. Full military retirement? And, yes, sir. And then you get out, you're, I mean, I would think you're pretty, you're like 43, 44. Mm-hmm. And then so you have a whole second career ahead of you. Right. Or third career or fourth career. I mean, as many <laughs> careers you want at that point. But I mean, so so what did you do? So what was it after that made you decide to, to retire from the military after 21, 22 years? So... Um, the second time we were stationed in Nebraska, um, after I became an officer, um, my now late wife, had uh, she got cancer. And so for the last 15 years of my career, no, I'm sorry, last 10 years of my career, she had cancer. So while I'm doing deployments and everything else, we're oh doing that around goodness. her treatments. Wow. And um, my last 18 months, I was actually going to stay in the military longer. I was planning on, I had this great goal. I wanted to do the assignment I was at in Tampa, which was Central Command Headquarters, working with coalition folks. And then I was going to do that assignment, and I already lined up either going to India or going to Indonesia and working at the embassy as kind of my swan song, and then moving into civil service. And then my wife's cancer metastasized. And so I knew at that point, I already had over 20 years in, I said, I'm leaving. Um, I dropped my paperwork for retirement. Um... Normally, it takes about a year to a year and a half to retire. I did it in about two months. Oh, my goodness. So I never regret that decision. Oh, for sure. Um, and I think because of that, our quality of life was great, and I spent a lot of time with my wife. So, yes. so anyway, that's why I retired. And I retired out of Central Command, like I said, headquarters. It was a great job. It was We had um, 34 people in there from nine different countries. Wow. And I was the um, executive officer which meant I was kind of the number two guy so we had the commander but I was the one who made everything work every day that's always the number two anyways <laughs> right <laughs> and I also got to be the um we did a lot of cultural analysis things so um it was all these folks who because you know we're fighting this war at this point and we are smart people but we don't know the culture so we actually got smart and asked all the other countries in the coalition can you send people to Tampa so we can start producing these big level projects and and papers and presentations to kind of educate the combatant commanders on what's culturally smart, what's culturally unsmart. And so I got to work with these guys and it was really great. In fact, my retiring officer was a Norwegian Special Forces colonel. So wow. they wow. said I had to have a retirement ceremony. I was really mad about that. So oh. I said, fine, I'll do it. And then I said, well, I want Colonel so-and-so to do it. And they were like, um, he's, he's not U.S. I don't care. So did he? He did, because they fought with me, but nothing in the regulation. The admiral I was working for wanted me to be him, but I said, you know, there's nothing in the regulation, so it has to be a U.S. officer, and since you're making me do this, I want it my way. Well, that's really neat. So one of the things you listed here is leading uh, one of the first four deployed teams in Operation Afghanistan Freedom on September 17, 2001. Mm -hmm. Can you... Get into some details on that. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of I, I really kind of dig in on the uh, 9/11 and the terrorist attacks and so forth. And 
and I don't, I don't know. My wife thinks I'm a little weird because I really like watching some of those documentaries over and over and, <laughs> and uh, doing that. So if you could just kind of share a little bit of that, what you can, of some of that experience there. Sure. Um, <clears throat> it's one of the best times I had in the military, I think, too. I mean, not the attack, of course, but the, um, I was in counterterrorism by that point. I'd been in counterterrorism for several years. So um, when this happened, I'm at Offutt Air Force Base again. So that was the third time I was there. And where is that again? It's um, Nebraska. Okay. Omaha, Nebraska. Okay. Um, I had just gotten back from Saudi Arabia, in fact. Um, I was on um, just coming back off of R&R from spending time in Saudi Arabia. I'm actually in the office signing paperwork to come off of leave when the TVs are on and we see the first tower hit. And my boss at the time calls me and says, hey, are you watching on TV? I said, yeah, I'm in the office. And so the general of the base calls me into the command center. We have it up on the big screens, and he's asking me, you know, what's going on? I said, well, I don't know. I'm not a pilot. And I said, but it seems weird to me that a plane would hit the first tower or a tower like that because – and then as I'm saying that, a plane slams into the tower, the second tower. So we're watching it live, and this is in the morning in Nebraska. Um, and as soon as that happens, he said, you're not going anywhere, you know. Rips up your paper. He did. So, um, and, uh, so he had me in the command post there, and we were, I was there for about 36 hours straight. Wow. So, and he's pulling me aside and asking me questions. You know, you know the culture. You know terrorism. You know, who could this be? And, you know, right away, you know, I'm, I'm telling him, you know, and this is kind of flabbergasted. Right? I'm a brand new, I'm still a second lieutenant. So I'd been in the service for 14 years, but I was a brand new second lieutenant, which is the lowest um, officer rank. Oh. So they call them butter bars and oh. wet behind the ears oh, and a sure. bunch of other things. So, and ducktails. Oh, so, um, but I'm an old first lieutenant or a second lieutenant. So I told him it's either going to be Iran or it's going to be Al Qaeda because those are the only two organizations that would have a beef against us. And Iran wouldn't kick over the rat's nest like that. So, um, basically I stayed there and we just kept doing messages kept coming in. We heard about the other, you know, attack on, on the Pentagon. We've heard about the plane go down in Pennsylvania and I'm watching all this while the feeds are coming in and we're calling other nations and seeing if they know what's going on. So, um, so crazy. And so my, my late wife, Linda, she was the consummate, um, she was a consummate military spouse. So after 36 hours, I come home and I've been in, uh, sorry, I've been in Saudi Arabia the whole time just gotten back a few weeks before she had had all my bags out she got all the sand out of them she had a list of what i needed and she had put my um my, rewrote my name on the bags wow and they were waiting for me in the living room and she said i assume you're going i said well yeah i've already asked to go so oh my god so you went over to afghanistan at that point or where did you I, I went into the region um okay. yeah in central asia um i was there by the 17th oh my goodness so in fact, I deployed, um, my orders were um, off, Operation Infinite Justice. So little little trivia for your listeners. Yes. The um, OAF was originally, Operation Afghanistan Freedom was originally called Operation Infinite Justice because apparently President Bush didn't have cultural analysts who were by him, and he called it Operation Infinite Justice. I had orders, and on the plane, we got this phone call military aircraft saying rip up those orders don't show them to anybody because in islam in in the middle east infinite justice is reserved for allah alone and so it was culturally insensitive to call it that so i'm one of i think they they told me at one point i'm one of less than 100 people that have orders that say operation infinite justice me and my team so 
crazy. And you couldn't save those or anything? I actually did. I saved oh. a copy, and it's in my shadow box. So when we retire from that the military, is... we have medals and everything. I put that in there because it's just too cool not to. That is something. Gosh. So can you talk a little bit about once you got over to the region and, and kind of like on a high level what you guys were doing? Sure. We set up a uh, – we got there, and there's little the base we were at was literally – there was nothing there. Um it was a, another nation's air base. They allowed us to have a couple of hangars, and we set up shop. So it went from a bare-bones hangar they weren't using anymore to um, our sleeping quarters, and it was where one of our jets was. I was um, stationed for the, with the 55th Reconnaissance Wing. So there's aircraft that would fly and do reconnaissance work, and we supported them. Um, supported the air crew in, in training, um, SERI training, um, search of aid, res- um, you know, what about the military? So I can't remember what Siri stands for anymore. I used to teach it. It's um, survival, basically, yeah. in case the airplane is shot down. So we were there to train them on that and also provide the cultural stuff. And I quickly became the liaison between the bases, um, the host national, host national base and our folks because, um, you know, again, cultural differences could really. So I spent a lot of my time, honestly, drinking tea with the base commander there and kind of getting him to get on board with us. Which was interesting um, because we were drinking tea with this guy, and he would tell me, he's very, very cooperative, but he would tell me that um, point blank that, well, we know that al-Qaeda didn't do this. We know that it was the Israeli government and the CIA, but we're still going to help you because I was told to. So I had to sit there and drink tea with this guy <laughs> and, you know, and smile and, and oh, say, goodness. oh, yeah, I understand that, Major, you know, and then get what we needed. So do you drink tea today? I still drink tea today. Oh, interesting. It looks like you drink single malt, single malt, malt, malt. scotch as well. Maybe sounds I like, can spit that one out. Sounds like you drink some single malt scotch. Yeah, I should do at this point. It's funny. Okay, so here, let me ask you this to kind of shift a little bit. Um, so I know you have a huge heart for um, religion, mm-hmm. and you're currently in seminary. Yes. So while you were in the military, were you providing a sense of um, spiritual calm to your peers, or um, had you already been kind of feeling called in that direction while you were still doing military, or when did that kind of fold in? Um, my mom would tell you when I was 12. <gasps> really? So, um, <clears throat> yeah, she uh, she always thought I had a calling. So my grandmother. Really? And those are my two. My mom's mom and my mom are the, are the two spiritual, like, beacons in my life. They're the oh. ones who really brought me up in the faith, um, which is not to say that everything I do is a reflection of them because I, do, <laughs> sure. I don't always do what I'm supposed to do. But, sure. Um, so she would say 12, and when I was in that deployment, um, that first one, um, I was snagged to do a couple of extra things. So I was doing all of that during the day, and I had a four-person team under me, um, despite being the lowest-ranking officer at the time in that unit. And they also, um, I was able to put tents up. They dropped off tents, and no one knew how to put them together. I used to be in the Army, so oh my, my guys goodness. got drafted into building tents for everybody. Um, but they also, um, the commander that was there said, well, you have a Bible on your bunk. We don't have a chaplain, so you're going to be the chaplain, too. <laughs> so I did some religious services um, as you well. You a jack of all trades. Uh, during that assignment, I was a jack of all trades. Right. So, in fact, I got to one of my great joys is um, got to baptize one guy oh my who was there who left saying, you know, yeah, what an atheist he was. And I worked him for a couple of years, and then that quickly changed when when he was afraid and, and out. and um, So that was kind of fun. That is. So what faith were you brought up in? 
I was, my parents were brought up with um, non-denominational. My mother went to a little non-denominational church, the picture-perfect little white church in the country. Sure. And my dad was um, raised Assembly of God and Church of Christ. Okay, okay. And your grandparents were, uh, your mom's mom, I guess, was also coming from the non-denominational? The Pentecostal movement, so Pentecostal holiness, um, loosely probably four-square gospel. Okay. Which is a small denomination. Very good. Well, that kind of getting into the the religious aspect of it, you kind of touched on it in the military. Where was that? Is there certain times in your life up to between not we'll just say nine eleven when you're twelve and when you're nine eleven that you can look at and go, man, I remember this being a a memorable time in my life on a religious aspect of my belief or you know, certain things like that. So what is there something you could share in that aspect for us, in that timeline? Uh, yeah, if you thought this was convoluted, wait for this. Um, <laughs> I love it. Um, like I said, I was raised, you know, we went by time I was in late high school. I was, um, we were in a Baptist church, and nothing against my Baptist brothers and sisters, many of whom I love um, dearly as brothers and sisters in Christ, but, you know, in... Sunday school, again, there's a, there's a trend. I would ask questions and basically was told, don't ask those questions, just pray more. Oh, you, know, you need to have faith in whatever. And I didn't like that answer. So there was a quite a bit of time when I kind of I left church. Um, I explored in the first Gulf War for a while Islam, um, Judaism, Buddhism. I was a Baha'i for a few years. But then finally, you were talking about the points. Um, probably in 2000 is when I started realizing being a Baha'i is great, but Christ isn't here. And I've never lost a heart for Christ. And um, just over a series of talks with people and a lot of prayer and fasting, I came back to the church. And then from then on, I really had a heart to eventually go into ministry. Is there anybody that was like a mentor in this process for you that you look to and go, wow, that person? My mom. Your mom? My mom, yeah. Did you have some, some conversations with her along the way with this? Or? You know, she never once said, me and my, my parents never said, well, Baha'i, that's a weird thing. You shouldn't do that. They were very supportive. They, you know, we, Baha'is fast certain times of the year and they do certain things that are a little odd just to, to, Westerners, we you know pray four times a day, that type of thing, five, three times a day, and um, they never once. I think the fact they never once said, "Yo, you're being stupid." I'm not familiar with Baha'i. Am I saying it right? Mm-hmm. Can you give me a little education, quick one minute education on what that sure. is? Sure, one minute education. <laughs> the, the Baha'i faith believes that all of the major world religions are basically the same religion, but that God educates humanity and brings them along through different phases. So um, when you're a child, your parents will tell you, don't touch the light socket because the light socket's bad. But later on, when you're a teenager, you want to plug in, you know, radio or TV and listen. And so it's not bad. It's just at the time, not touching it is bad. So basically they believe that, you know, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, and then the um, the, the final manifestation of of the prophet of God was Baha'u'llah. And this comes from Iran. So I liked it because it was it talked about world unity and peace and a big thing for me has always been um, the equality of women. So it was it very much pushed women to get educated and to be at the forefront of every endeavor. So it, it appealed to me quite a bit. 
Wow. So, and, and just thinking through your experience in living in all these different cultures, experience a lot of different religions, and then becoming very close, I'm, I'm assuming, with people that have a different belief system, mm-hmm. there had to be a certain amount of respect that would come around uh, or come about from, from those friendships being built. Did that have an impact on kind of how your religious belief system kind of went? Maybe when you're in your 20s, you're influenced differently than maybe when you're in your 30s? Um, I think coming in contact with people of different faiths has always enriched my faith. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a job. There's an organization called the Air Command and Staff College. It's in Montgomery, Alabama. And I had a job where um, it's a graduate school. So for a year, all these different officers from all over the Air Force and the other military branches come and they get a graduate degree. Well, we also have people from 80 different countries that come. And my job was to care and feeding for them, make sure they got housing, got their kids in school because they bring their families over. And um, one of the one of the proudest moments of my career is the Muslims started calling me Mr. Mosque because they didn't have a place to pray. And when I got there, that's one of the first things I did is I gave up an office that was probably about the size of this office. And I went into what was literally a closet for my office. And I made sure they had prayer rugs and I cleaned it up. And so they were able to pray. And they, you know, so I was called Mr. Mosque from then on. So That's awesome. That's awesome. So with, with this, because I'm so bad with timelines, but tell me, at this point, are you a dad? Mm-hmm. Okay, and so with your family, were, were, did y'all practice any of the religion or some of these spiritual practices together? Or We did. Um, my family wasn't Baha'i. I was, so we would go to Baha'i um, meetings sometimes. We also still went to church. And my son, you know, you, you asked me about who kind of mentored me and brought me up. My son was probably nine years old, eight years old. And he looked at me when we went to a Baha'i service one day, and we were coming home driving, and he said, Daddy, but what about Jesus? And that's what really got me. Interesting. So really, I would, I'd say my mom for talking right. it out, but my son was the one who really kind of was the wake of the Holy Spirit really talked to my son. Wow. So. Oh, that's interesting. That's, that's great. Yeah. You know, that, that is a unique story. It's almost, I mean, it, it makes you kind of want to get into this, Masters of Divinity, and when you came to, when did that, when did you sit down and go, this is what I need to be doing next? When, when did you get that call or that feel that you were being called to ministry? So once I came back to the church, I went to the United Methodist Church, and so I was uh, United Methodist up until I met Jennifer, and then I married her and became a Presbyterian, so great recruiting yeah. tactic. Um, <laughs> And in the United Methodist Church is something called um, Walk to Emmaus, which is the same yes. thing as pilgrimage yep. in um, PCUSA. And um, it was during a weekend of that. My wife had already been di- um, At that time, she had already been, uh, had metastasized cancer for a few years. So I didn't really want to take the full weekend off. But my pastor said, you really should. And I did. And the first night of that, I heard one of the few times I've heard an audible voice saying you know to me to um you're called to be a minister and i was really really angry about that because i did not want to do that so i kicked and screamed about that for a while i've heard many people 
say that where they were called but it wasn't the right time or whatnot and they're like what no come on and then but yet it keeps coming back to you so that is interesting so where are you living at this point when you're doing your walk to Emmaus and when you got the call um, Las Vegas Nevada Las Vegas okay so I retired from Tampa and um, I took a job there doing um it's called requirements analysis. So the, the war fighters say, we desperately need this thing to fight the war better. And instead of going through the procurement process that can take seven, ten years, we were able to kind of look at it and we were able to free up funds for private companies to come in and give them what they needed. And I really enjoyed that job, but it wasn't cultural analysis and it wasn't counterterrorism. And two months into that job, um, Las Vegas um, opened up a job for me at Nellis Air Force Base with the 3rd Special Operations Squadron. Wow. They were flying um, Predator UAVs, the drones, people call them, and their customer was only Special Forces counterterrorism folks in Afghanistan, Iraq, and other places. So I couldn't turn that down. I was able to take care of my wife, but able to still join the fight in counterterrorism. So that's what brought me to Vegas. Okay. And um, it was in Vegas when... Um, when I went to walk Emmaus was in 2010. So, okay. And I told God, we, we argued about it quite a bit. I screamed about it a lot. He's such a great father. He doesn't mind that we yell and scream. Right. Just like when our teenagers run and slam the door and say, I hate you. You know, and we just kind of go, yeah, sure. God did the same thing. So thank God. And <laughs> yes. uh, I told him, I said, fine, you know, I need to take care of my wife because she's terminally ill and I want to spend the time with her I can't possibly go to divinity school and do all this so when everything is said and done if you still want me to go I'll go but not now okay and that was 2010 and when did Linda pass 2012 2012 so from 2010 to 2012 you were working in Vegas but really taking care of her and being at home and how old are your kids at this point um my son was 20, Okay. and my daughter was 24. Okay, okay. Ooh, that's a big one. Okay, so now that's... So when Linda passed, you were still in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. So what What did you... What got, How did you end up over here in Texas? <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't a straight line. Yeah. Because, oh, yeah, I because nothing see. in the story is. <laughs> no. um, so I would have been working... I transitioned from that job with the 3rd Special Operations Squadron a couple of years before that and was working Department of Energy counterintelligence. So our job was to, if uh, foreigners tried to access any information in the Department of Energy, our job was to make sure that it wasn't going back to whatever country they were coming from. Um, And people don't realize this about the Department of Energy, but they're the ones who build nuclear weapons. So that was the program I worked. Um, People think it's solar energy and wind and all that, and that's a big part of it, but it's also um, the National Defense Act of 1947 separated the people who would make nuclear weapons from the people who would employ them. And it was done so that not one branch of the service had all the power. Right. So um, I had been working that and had worked for a miserable boss. The guy was just terrible. Um, we've since made up at the time he made my life. I hope he doesn't hear the podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll edit that. Um, you know, he would do thousands of family medical leave for my wife the last year she was alive, and he would call me and like harass me about you know when you get this report done, that type of thing. So I was I was pretty much ready to be done with that job. Just um, and then when she passed away, there was no real reason for me to stay. My father was the vice president of security at J.B. Hunt Transportation in Arkansas, 
and he had dropped a bombshell that he was ready to retire, and no one ever thought he would retire. Wow. And as he's talking to the CEO and the board, it became pretty apparent pretty quickly that um, I'd be in the running to apply for that job if I wanted it because they wanted the same mix of people who've had military and civilian security experience. So long story short, because of nepotism, I got the job and um, did that for four years. So I lived in Bentonville, Arkansas for four years. And um, this whole time I'm going through um, what's called complicated grief. So basically clinical depression for a couple of years. Um, Apparently my my grief counselor and therapist said I'm, I'm terribly resilient. So I was able to hold this job down and do everything else while I spent two years just grieving really hard. And as I got better, she was very proud of my progress, and she said, well, you really need to talk to more people than just me, and I, you should sign up for a, an online dating service. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. So that's another theme in my life. Yeah, and she goes... I'm seeing that. She said, not, you know, not just not for dating, don't worry about that, but just for companionship. So you start talking to other people besides me. And I said, well, I like talking to you. And she said, yeah, but that's not what this is for. And I said, well, how come it couldn't be? I'm paying you. Right. And um, long story short, she made me, um, made me, she highly suggested that I get on eHarmony. And so I did. And I was very much a two-year-old about it. I wrote the snarkiest profile that I could. And she said, how's it going? And I said, well, two or three women have, have approached me, and I think this is stupid, so I didn't talk back to them. And she said, well, I want you to try for six more months. And so I doubled down on the two-year-old act and oh, bought Jerry. a platinum one-year membership. And I said, I'll show you. And then I rewrote my, my, um, my profile. And two days after that, this beautiful woman named Jennifer O'Neill. Oh, you're going to make me cry. Answered me. Um, she'd been on for a while, I guess, and had gone through that rigmarole. I literally, she was the only woman I really talked to on eHarmony. That is so wait, and you're in Arkansas. And she's here in Houston. And she's here. Mm-hmm. Okay, wow, this is cool. So then how long did you guys talk before you met in person? So um, we started in April, and in the end of June, she was visiting her parents up in Kansas, and she calls me on a Sunday night and says, well, I'm driving back to Houston tomorrow, but it's only a 45-minute detour. I can come by, and maybe we can meet and have coffee. We'd already planned a date for July um, for my birthday. I was going to come down and meet her. And so I got the message. I picked up the phone. I called my the number two guy who worked for me, and I said, you're taking the staff meetings tomorrow, and I'm taking the morning off so I can, I can meet this lady. And he goes, well, but I'm meeting – you meet the CEO every Monday. I said, yeah, you're taking that meeting because I'm not. I'm going to go see this lady. And um, this is one of my favorite stories to tell. So um, Yeah, your whole – I mean, this is obviously a joy, joyful story too, but just looking at you, you're glowing. I love it. So I, uh, we met at Starbucks, my favorite place in the world. Um, and she walks in, and I knew right away. That she was the woman for me. So when did it change from I'm doing this despite the, 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 your counselor that was like, hey, you need to do this, double down six months, and you're like, yeah, whatever. And then there had to be a click where you're like, all right, I, I got to take this serious. The second message that Jennifer sent me. So the way eHarmony works is you make an initial connection, and then there's five like pat um, questions yep. that you exchange back and forth. By the end of the second question of exchange, I knew that okay, I'm going to explore this because the game's over. She's now, now I'm in it. Ah, yeah. Love it, love it. 
So we met for, for coffee, and we talked for an hour, and we talked for two hours. We got a pastry. We talked for three <laughs> hours. She was only going to stop for an hour because she had to get back to Houston. And then about the four-hour point, I'm like, are you hungry? And she goes, yeah. So there's great sushi in this place. Let's go and uh, go grab some sushi. So we wound up having a late lunch, and she wound up being there for eight hours. I love it. And I went um, back to my mom and dad's house because they live in Arkansas. And she asked my mom, of course, asked me, you know, how was it? How was it? And I said, well, she doesn't know it yet, but I'm going to marry her. Oh, goodness. Wow. So ah, your counselor must have seen, okay, he needs to get back in the game. So I'm going to say he can just talk to some people. And then well, we found the right one. And not even get back in the game. But she sees that over, that you're a lover. I mean, you know you love. And, and even when I asked... Um, you know, about you, uh, let's see, I reached out to Jennifer and I asked, what is one of the um, best qualities of Johnny? And uh, she talked about his love. And she says, I know we're newlyweds two and a half years later, (laughs) but just to categorize it as um, would be meaningful, he loves deeply and it shows in all that he does and work, play and faith. So I can imagine your counselor knew that you still you still had a lot of love to give and um, going through that grief process and doing the hard work. And, um, you know, so that's, that's really beautiful. I, I did have a question on that. Mm-hmm. Was, was that the, have you suffered with depression on and off over the years or was the death of your spouse what really sunk you and you were able to kind of do the work and, and come out of it? Um, it was Linda's death. Well, actually, it was at her death. It was the anticipatory grief when the last six months became pretty obvious um, that she was declining. And um, that's when I first recognized it. But then after I got into the counseling, you know, the, the therapy process, I realized, no, I've been I've wrestled depression most of my life. Well, and the reason I ask that is I feel like often very creative, artistic souls have that pain and joy and I, and I get that from you so I was just curious if that was something that would make sense to me that you probably have had that type of pain not that type but pain mm-hmm. overall you know so I was curious if that was something um, okay so speaking of Jennifer she mentioned a really neat story that she thought maybe you would want to share and it's back in 2001 and it's sort of how you came to meet Kevin Costner. But not only that Kevin Costner was the way, was the story, but the whole reason that you even got to. So do you want to um, share that story with us? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, the unit I was at in Nebraska, Omaha, was um, we would work the um, College World Series. So we'd have a, a booth there, sell hot dogs, hamburgers, fundraiser for, you know, um, picnics and, and going away presents, things like that. And uh, I was voluntold I was going to work, which is fine. It's part of what you do when you're a young lieutenant. And um, driving on the way there, a car had got into an accident in front of me. Uh, someone had ran a red light and T-boned this guy, and his car had flipped and threw him out. Um, so he was on the ground. I literally saw it happen, slammed my brakes on, um, blocked off the traffic, and was able to render first aid to him. Um, and stayed there until the, uh, the ambulance got there. The airlift came, and they had to airlift him off because he had broken his back. And um, I had blood on me. And I didn't want to go anywhere, but I'm like, oh, I'm a lieutenant. I have to go. My boss will get mad at me if I don't. So I went there and... Uh, 
to the World Series, College World Series, and told them what was happening. And about that time, I didn't meet Kevin Costner because of this. Kevin Costner literally was just coming in to get a hot dog and a hamburger. And so as I'm telling him this, and I still have blood on my shirt, he uh, he saw and overheard, and he uh, was very kind. So Wow. Okay. Pretty and you guys cool. still keep in touch today. <laughs> yeah. I see his movies. <laughs> well, and I understand you're an avid baseball fan, and I'm not sure because of Field of Dreams, of course, but I do understand that you're a huge baseball fan. Is that right? I am a pretty big baseball fan, yes. Yes, and I heard through the grapevine that you have added the Houston Astros to your list of baseball. Oh, for sure. Fandom. For sure. I uh, <laughs> And the Kansas City... Royals. Royals. Yes. All right. And the Royals is because I've lived near there. Every every place I've lived, I've always followed that local team, and so they still have a special place in my heart. So it may sound kind of uh, disingenuous, but I probably follow about, I'd say, eight different teams that I kind of love. Casey Royals, though, is because Jennifer's dad worked there for 30 years, as, or 20 years as their um, head trainer. Oh, wow. Um, but also in Omaha, those were the games you got. So right. we watched the Kansas City Royals all the time. And then, of course, the Astros, because I'm here, and I love the Astros now. Okay, I like it. Do you it. like college baseball after being in Omaha? Um, this may be an unpopular thing to say. I don't like college baseball. I don't care for the sound of the, the bat. Aluminum bat. Right? I know that sounds kind of dumb, That's but I don't like that ting sound. But I'm learning to like it. I don't like the aluminum bats. I wish they'd go to wood bats, but mm-hmm. I like the baseball because it's so unrefined. You get See, that's why that's why I like Triple A ball so much. Oh. I'm AAA, a huge Triple A. Yeah. Same thing. You get a lot of surprises. Somebody can have an off night. The majors you don't you don't see a lot of the off night. There's a lot of recovery. A lot of you know people can make up can 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 make up some of that. In a college game, you can see it go from an eight nothing game to a ten eight victory by the other team in a matter of an inning. Right. Which is really kind of exciting and keeps you in the game. I think what I, I, I'll bring back to music because I always do. I love AAA and AA ball for that reason. It's like jazz, right? All kinds of improvisation, improvisation and craziness happens. And I love Major League because it's like a symphony. And like all these beautiful pieces are all together to come to create this beautiful music. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I love it. All right. Well, a couple other things we just wanted to touch upon. And um, so one one thing we had asked you earlier and I thought it was pretty fun is – so you've done a lot of different jobs. Mm-hmm. You've lived a lot of different places. Um, what is one that would just be a total reach as a dream job or a dream location to live? What are some of those like fun, like maybe someday? Hmm. Um, I would love to be a middle reliever pitcher. <laughs> I would love to have that experience just once. I don't necessarily want to do it as a career, but I'd love one time. So if anybody, if an, if an, if an Astros person is listening, yeah. I would love to throw one pitch in the middle of a game um That's awesome. so why why middle relief why not starter why not closer why not set up i mean you know, middle relief is is i mean typically when the starter is going to get knocked out within the fourth or fifth inning before fourth or fifth inning right and you're going to come in and you're going to pitch several innings but you're probably not going to close the game out no so why why the middle i just love the whole concept of a middle relief pitcher I love the idea that they're not going to be the one closing or the one opening. They're just there as part of the team. Yeah. I also know that I'm not that good, so I <laughs> probably couldn't ask for the other two. But I really just like that idea. Of, I love the concept of teams. Yeah. That's why I like baseball so much because it's all about, and you may have a couple of big stars, but it really is the entire team that can make or break a game. And so that middle relief guy is just that, that one person, that one little linchpin that you know can make a big difference, even though he may only pitch a couple of, you know. So what would be your, your specialty pitch? 
A slider. Ooh. Slider? Slider. All right. Yeah. Good. And knowing nothing about baseball, I'm just impressed. <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I was hearing about the middle relief pitcher, I'm like, a middle relief pitcher? Aren't they always in the middle? <laughs> I didn't know. I'll take the sports stuff. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you, I'll take, the, take psychology. Some of the other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, so I know you had mentioned some other dream jobs you may want is a beekeeper. Yes. A cheese maker, mm-hmm. a travel writer, and a novelist. So have you, do you do a lot of writing currently? I do a lot of writing in school. So, um, in fact, when I get out of here, I've got 10 pages i got to write before midnight. So, um, but I do, I do like to write. Jennifer has told me that that's what she fell in love with me um, through my writing. She said, and she's told people, she's told me that, you know, when she saw my writing, she knew that she had to meet me. Oh, so I, I do love, love to write. And I want to be, you know, I would love to do beekeeping or cheese making just because, um, I bring it back to theology again, you know, once the world is made new and once there's a new heaven and new earth, there won't be a need for probably a preacher or a security person, counterterrorism person. So I'll need to do something to, <laughs> to while away my days. And I would love to be able to make cheese or to just That's keep bees. Awesome. But, I, but this is interesting. Did you see all the themes on all of this? I mean, I'm sure you recognize the themes throughout your life, but my goodness. I mean, the theme of, of craving knowledge with more open um, doors, because it seems like you crave knowledge and get shut down in random ways because you're, you're not looking at education this way, but like this. Right. So I love that. And I love how many times you mentioned you were either involved in housing or helping with housing or they wanted you to do housing support but even mr musk i mean you're definitely um you have a whole theme of hospitality and um and the cultural awareness that you bring it's not just a cultural awareness but i feel like you really are open to people and their needs Mm -hmm. and i saw that theme all along i mean really some cool stuff Jennifer had said loyalty to family, to friend, to neighbor, and to country. And I look at your concern for culture and cultural awareness as a caring. You have a deep need of caring for other people. Yeah, I do. And, and it comes through in yeah. everything we talked about today. Yeah. Um, there, I did have one question that we didn't get to. As you said, if new math had been taught when I was in high school, I may have become a physicist instead of an analyst. <laughs> Help me out on that because the new math is kind of weird for me. So you guys were so you were stalking me on Facebook. <laughs> no, this is what you wrote. Did I? Yeah. Oh, you wrote this in there. You said, "Tell I'm, I'm a grad student. I uh, rem- don't remember anything from like five hour spans. Yeah. Right. Um, no, you, have you seen that meme that's out there? That's the uh, math equation, and it can either be answered as one or sixteen. Yeah. So I get sixteen, like the new kids do, and I loved. Physics, like when I was a little, when I was a kid, I loved the idea of physics. I want to be a physicist, but I just math and I never got along. I took the same math class three times in college, in high school, because I just couldn't. And it was business math, for goodness sakes. I just oh. couldn't get because for me, it goes back to that thinking thing you were talking about. I uh, I don't like being told something. You know, do this and this and this because we say do this and this. Right. I don't like that. I like to know why, which is why I got yeah. drawn toward philosophy and yes. social sciences. And so, but if I had gotten math like that, I probably would have gone to physics. I love quantum physics and that whole idea where physics and philosophy kind of intersect. Oh, yes. Yeah. So the other thing that you said that got me, and you'll know this one because we've been in all these uh, get-to-know-Northwoods luncheons. Yeah. Because you said early on that a teacher said, um, 
or no, at Baptist church, they said, don't ask, just pray. Don't ask those questions. And Paul is big. He has this, I don't know if you've gone through, I get to know Northwoods Luncheon. But Paul, I haven't. He, I and I don't want to give it away. Yes, but when you join the church. No, they don't do them all the time. They only do them like once or twice a year now. See what happens when I retire. That's so, what happened. It was after you retired that I joined. Yes. Yeah. So what? What? He, one of the things he does, you write down five questions or three questions you have for Paul. And he always starts it off by saying, you know, when I was in, in youth uh, summer camp, Christian camp, and I would say, well, who, who created God? And the counselor said, God created God. He goes, well, who created God who created God? And it goes back and forth. And finally, the counselor goes, that's a dumb question. And right. Paul goes, there's no dumb questions. And because he story. really did want to know. He wasn't trying to be sarcastic or he wasn't trying to be a, like a, a jokester yeah. in youth camp. But he really wanted to know. And that really yeah. set him. And so that when you said that, I was like, oh, man, you, you need to go to get to know Northwoods and have a conversation with Paul. Because Paul, that's how he is. No, he may not have the answer. And the other thing he, Paul says is... Um, that uh, the, he asked his seminary professor, um, "What are you, you asking different questions? Do you, no, or do you what? Do you have the answers to those questions?" And he goes, "No, I'm asking different questions. So I'm not." Have the, the que- answers changed? Yeah, no, I'm the asking different changed, questions. Yeah, exactly. Have the answers changed to these questions? He goes, "No, I'm asking different questions now." Talking about his professor that had been in ministry for forty or fifty years. Yeah. Right. So that's what I've always seen in the Bible, right? You look at Jesus, and he's he's rarely ever giving you a formula. You have to do this, say this. He does it with different people. So you may have a problem with riches. So he says you have to go sell everything you own. You may not have a problem with riches. So you're just your faith is going to make you whole. You may be blind, and I may put mud on your eyes, and you're okay. You I might just say your faith has made you okay. So Jesus is very individual. And I love that idea that, you know, the thing about Jesus that makes Christianity different than any other religion is it's a relationship with Christ, with the incarnate, crucified, risen Christ. And the book we have is just commentary on that. It's not um, an owner's manual. Right. And to me, it's and why I love seminary so much and why I think I might be an okay pastor is because I'm okay with people asking questions. In fact, I'd like to hear the questions you have because that will tell me a lot about where you're at in faith. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have a um for going in seminary, do you have like a um like an end point of which religion or church or where you want to go with your um to be a pastor? Are you open to where your faith Where are you at seminary? Leads are you, at, you? you at Fuller? Fuller? Yeah, okay. Yep. I'm at Fuller Theological Seminary here in town and um I am also an inquirer for um ordination in PCUSA. So we moved around every couple of years. We also went to different denominations every time we moved. My parents just wanted to go to the right church. They didn't care right. about denomination. And so, and Jennifer is, I mean, she's like fifth generation Presbyterian. So for me, it was no a no-brainer. And, and she was funny because she said, well, we can go to Methodist or we can do something different. I said, no, you, you have a heart for PCUSA. And I have a heart for Christ, and Christ is in PCUSA, so we're fine. But my end goal is I really want, I feel myself called to work with refugees from war-torn countries and veterans. Okay. And I think that those two communities together can heal each other's wounds. Oh, for sure. Especially because a lot of veterans I know have turned from Christ. And when I ask them why is that, they say, well, church has nothing for me. It's all about, you know, right. smiles and rainbows and God is love. And it's some of the things we've seen and some of the things we've done right. makes it hard for them to, to connect with an idea of God or connect with a you know, a quote-unquote churchy 
place. Right. Yes, that community. So do you see that here in the States or potentially when you say war-torn country, potentially somewhere out of the States or I don't know. God annoyingly hasn't let me know yet, okay. so I don't So you're know. open. I'm open. Um, you know, my dream job, if I were being really honest, it would be in um, in refugee camps in, in Jordan. Okay. Um, and wow. without a, a mind for ever making a church or, you know, anybody right. becoming a Christian, just going and, and showing the love of Christ to people who are in need. But I'm drawn to crisis. I'm starting a, um, hopefully, a chaplaincy residency here in the fall. And I'm also talking to the first responders in the area about becoming a, a, a crisis support chaplain for them. So I'm really called wherever there's crises. I don't think I'd be a good week-to-week in a church pastor role, like going to session and being oh. in committees and stuff. I'm not so sure that's I don't know me. If anybody but. is. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, the one thing you only brought it up a couple times, but it's kind of interesting. You you only brought up money a couple times. It's all your decisions are based on what you got to experience. The only times you brought up money were staying in the army or staying in the air force after the first four years mm-hmm. and getting in the air force because you couldn't make the money at the restaurant. Right. Other than that, it's all driven on the experience and the people you worked with were more important. And I think there's a little bit of a lesson to to everybody out there that money, as money as a driver, could be a dangerous thing. Um, where yours, you've had an incredible life up to this point that wasn't driven on that. I mean, you worked in high school not because you needed the money, but because you were bored with school. And you enjoyed serving. Yeah. And you enjoyed the relationships. You're very relationship. Relationships are very important to me. Yeah. But, yeah, money, I uh, I got more than one person took me aside when I said I was leaving to come down here and get married and go to seminary and say, you know, you're walking away from a ridiculous amount of money. You're the, you know, security chief for a Fortune 500 company. You're at the top of your game. And if you stay here, you'll just go even more places. And I'm, but, you know. Yeah, I met this wonderful woman, right? and God called me to seminary, and it was the right time for everything. Well, and I love, because I think somewhere in my notes it even says here, um, let's see, Johnny loves baseball, but I thought somewhere it says Johnny loves being a house husband. I <laughs> do. Like, every woman wants right that. <laughs> like, I'm the only woman in the room. No, no, it might be in your <laughs> He cooks. Yes. He knows how to pitch a tent. Sign me up. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. No, I do. It's fun. I get to talk. I get to pick, take the kids to appointments. I get yes. to go get groceries. I get to cook when I'm not doing a lot of school stuff. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Absolutely. And I understand with your three new children, they call you Step Dude. Yep. Which I love. That says a lot about My your bonus relationship kids. with them. Your bonus kids. How old is the youngest? Uh, sixteen. Sixteen. Okay. And he has grand one grandchild or two. 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 That's two granddaughters. Was Sunday school teacher for Lance. Maybe a yes. little bit with Greg, but definitely Lance. Lance, yeah, because yeah. he's talking. She's because I, I was hate to say this, names don't trip things for me yep. at church. So I'm like, well, who is this guy? And she goes, oh, I, Lance was in my. Yeah. yeah, and that's how she plugs in is what yeah, kids she was she's talking right. Lance. Right. Yeah. We're gonna we we kind of end on a on a fun note. We have a we have about three questions here. We call them rapid fire. Okay. And so I'm gonna ask you the question. You just tell me what comes to mind. So your favorite sound. A saxophone, jazz sax. Oh, great. Least favorite sound? Um, a shrill siren. Biggest annoyance? Uh, migraines. Oh. Do you get them a lot? I get them a lot. Wow, that's a, that's a tough one there because there's not a lot you can do for a migraine. 
Yeah. Just work through it. Yep. Have you gotten migraines your whole life? Um, I had, uh, I've got, had five concussions, mostly professional injuries. And so I have headaches mostly every day, and then I get migraines a few times a month. So, okay, I know this isn't rapid fire, but I have to ask. Give me one story of how you got a concussion professionally, if you can. Sure. Um, no, no, they're not you know, super <laughs> secret or anything. Um, we were doing a night exercise once in, um, you know, you have the night vision goggles. There's no light or anything, and we're setting up camp. And I'm walking down the road, and this driver didn't have his night vision goggles on. And in a Humvee, he hit me going about 7 or 10 miles an hour. So not super fast, but it was enough to throw me back onto the hood oh, and, uh, and knock me out for a few minutes. Oh, my gosh. And you've uh, had five concussions? I've had five. Goodness. Okay. Back to our rapid fire. <laughs> Last rapid fire. Favorite okay. word. That's a hard one. Uh, bemusement. Bemusement. <laughs> I thought maybe Jesus, love. Right, you'd think so, but no. Yeah. So one last thing, just to kind of help wrap up, because we've learned so many unique things about you and exciting, amazing things. What's one last statement on you as a person that, whether it's a motto you live by or what your legacy, what you want your legacy to be, something just like one statement you can give to kind of wrap this up for us? Um, I try to live my life by basically, it's not really a motto, but it's just how I live my life. I want to love hard and I want to serve everyone that I possibly can. And I want to live a life of, of radical gratitude. I've been so blessed, more blessed than I probably deserve. I know that I deserve. And, um, my best jobs I've ever had are, um, um, husband and father. And so... Yeah. That's awesome. That's so great. Johnny, I knew you'd have a great story, and we were so excited that you agreed to come to our podcast. So we want to thank you so much. And really, there's still a million more questions I want to know, but I'm sure I have to limit it. So thank you so much for sharing more of your story on our More to My Story podcast. We look forward to um, learning more about you and our friendship and uh, seeing you do all the good work and following you in ministry. And um, we're so grateful that we have come into the same community here. And we're just really grateful for you to take time today to share on our More to My Story podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to More to My Story podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on your podcast service. And please also share us with your friends and family. You can find more about More to My Story podcast on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages.